It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Great news, everyone. The Wonky Show's back. Uh, We'll soon be staging a return to campus. We'll talk through some of the issues. Uh, We'll also discuss the great examinee shambles of the summer. And ministers have been making speeches with surprise implications for all sorts of things, not least the National Student Survey. It's all coming up. You know, this is a much more interventionist government. This is a much more active government, you know, from levelling up to spending money on applied research. And, you know, this isn't a government that wants to stand back and let other agencies... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson, still recording from home after all these months. Uh, And to kick off our new season, we have some familiar voices. Uh, In Oxfordshire, we have Mary Kernock-Cook, independent higher education expert. Mary, your highlight of the summer? Uh, Of the summer? Oh, my Lord. I was going to have my highlight of the week, which was a lovely walk yesterday where I had... Uh, so many berries, hawthorns, blackthorns, which I think are also slow, um, rose hips, elderberries, still some blackberries, and then also some kind of proper cartoon patterned mushrooms. But if it was my highlight of the summer, I'd have to say um, I'd have to say how uh, admissions professionals put their heads down and just sorted everything after the exams all went uh, went wrong. Excellent. And in Berkhamsted, we have Andy Westwood, Professor of Government Practice and Vice Dean of Humanities at the University of Manchester. Andy, your highlights of both the summer and the week? Oh, well, my highlights of the summer would have to be uh, our youngest daughter getting her A-level results uh, <laughs> and, then, and then a few days later getting some more A-level results. <laughs> Excellent. Twice the fun. Yeah. And in London, Debbie McVitie is the editor of Wonky. Debbie, your highlights. Uh my I think my highlight of the summer was um uh, being being around for clearing, uh the you know the first the, the first day of clearing and I love results day and then going on holiday and then watching the whole thing unfold from a very very safe distance. Good. Now, so we start this week uh with the return to campus. We're only a handful of days away from the annual internal migration of students to their universities and amid rising cases of COVID-19 in the so-called affluent young, uh, we are asking what the return to campus looks like in 2020. So Andy, what can we expect in the next few weeks, do you think? Oh, well, what, what can we expect? And I wish I knew. And I think that's that's basically the problem. You know, we just don't know what to expect. I think, as we know, uh, the great migration, as it's being called, you know, the, the docking of a cruise ship in city centres, uh, um, the, comparing it to, to care homes. You know, we've seen all these metaphors, but the reality is we, we, we just don't know. I mean, that's not to say that universities across the land haven't worked incredibly hard to make their campuses uh, as COVID safe as they can uh, and to put in place a kind of set of programmes and welcomes and whole semesters and years worth of uh, of new curriculums and courses to 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 
to, to make this uh, year as good as it can possibly be. The reality is, um, you know, we're all crossing our fingers and hoping that um, hoping that things go as well as they possibly can. Um, you and and others on Wonky have have uh, um, uh, really put a lot of effort into understanding that guidance. Uh, and of course, we know that at, uh, at uh, eighteen minutes past one this morning, um, or yesterday morning, depending on when you're listening to the podcast, um, the updated guidance finally dropped into universities' inboxes uh, uh, alongside a kind of an updated track and trace guide for uh, for universities that are basically, as you say, opening um, this weekend. So you know, everybody, I think, from ministers to vice chancellors to parents to students. Uh, are hoping for the best and um and and really none of them know what's going to happen and we all just hope that the systems we've put in place are going to cope with whatever does happen mary obviously um you know uh, you know one of the things certainly i put in the you know the blog really early this morning once i've done the look at the guidance was you know in truth we, we the, the the runaway train was already a runaway train by which i mean you know we're going to try and reopen campuses months and months ago um and you know I, I think it's interesting it's still not really clear that that's a good idea but to some extent we are we're, we're going with it and we're trying to make the best of it and I, I can't really call can you whether it's still a good idea or not oh i think it probably is i mean if we consider the fallout from closing schools and stopping exams i think there must be a, a a parallel you know having a million mostly young people sitting around with nothing particularly to do um <clears throat> doesn't feel to me like a good idea but i also just wanted to say i really hope there's some inspiring commencement uh, speeches this term because students are not only joining the scholarly community at their university but they're also joining a kind of scholarly covid aware and covid responsible community at their university, I felt a bit that the coverage has been very heavily tilted towards what universities could and should do, but there needs to be a bit of a balancing call to arms from students, you know, after all, who are adults, uh, even if some of them are quite young adults. But I think they're old enough to understand that we are <laughs> we are in the middle of a global pandemic. They can't have everything that they may, might want or expect in more normal times and that they've got to pull their weight too. And I, I've, actually, I've got huge faith in young people's ability at indeed their desire potentially to moderate their behavior and their expectations i really hope that universities will also concentrate on kind of motivating and inspiring their students to to become part of the covid solution and not become part of the covid problem debbie i mean i i was saying to someone the other day you know as the we're still waiting for the snowflakes in the snow dome to sort of settle, aren't we, on the new normal? And, you know, every day Twitter is alive with a debate about whether or not a particular rule is going too far or not far enough or consistent and so on. Is it that, you know, we're just going through the kind of pains of working out what how to live alongside a virus? Or is there something much more specific and exceptional about this kind of big migration event that we have in the UK around higher education and our boarding school model? I can't, I can't work out whether this is just another one of those people going to the beach and opening the pubs and so on, or whether it's something more profound. I, th I think it's both, because I think the thing that people find it very difficult to say is, is that if we want to continue life as normal, the consequence of that will be spiking cases and the potential for, for more death. And that's, you know, that's 
that's a very hard thing for any government to say. And so you, you have to kind of, I guess, fudge that a little bit by saying we're doing everything we can. And likewise, I think for a university to stand up and say, look, it, you know, we, we can't be 100% safe because this is, a, you know, this is a virus. <laughs> this is, you know, it's not, it's not something that we can kind of guarantee to protect you from. But, you know, we will absolutely jolly well do our best. And we know that universities, you know, you know, really are trying to put everything in place. I think there's some real specific issues to AHE, though. And that is this, I mean, and, and because you've got this mixture of different types of students. So you do have the boarding school model that comes with its own set of issues. Because if you've got, you know, as, as the Prime Minister said this week, if you've got a student that's tested positive for COVID-19, you're not expected to not send them home. Um, you know, and, th- and that's fine, of course. But if you're a student who has tested positive for COVID-19 and is sitting in your individual student block, whether or not you're actually ill or whether you're asymptomatic, you know, you, you might be sitting in a, t- a tiny little student, you know, cell-like student accommodation room. Um, and that's just a very unpleasant circumstance for you to be in, or if you've been forced to isolate. And, and therefore, the, the, you know, the incentive on students to do the right thing, I think, is, is, is much reduced. And the ability of universities to enforce that is, 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 is barely there. You've got, of course, you know, as we know, students in shared, in shared accommodation as well, um, and also students who are commuting in and living with their families, um, and who are then perhaps exposing you know, uh, older, more vulnerable members of those families to infection potentially as well. So I think there's something quite specific to the way it works the way universities are you know you know brilliantly most of the time embedded in their communities and the way that they serve these diverse groups of students that makes it very hard to make meaningful rules um and there is this gap i think you know mary you're completely right to say that you know young people in general are responsible i think that's probably true but i I think it doesn't take very many young people to be irresponsible um and actually the thing that you know, and I, but but actually, you know, not notwithstanding, and Jim, I think we differ on this. I do think it's probably on balance the right thing. I just think we could probably be a bit more honest about the fact that there will be consequences to doing it, um, and, and be prepared for kind of thinking about what how we handle that. And, and Andy, I mean, look, we talk a lot, uh, and we've talked a lot on the podcast before about you know the civic agenda and the, and the contribution that universities make. Absolutely, and I think this is kind of you know, as you say, this is one of those things that that we. We're not really talking about, uh, and of course, it's important to talk about the, the safety of campuses, the risks to uh, uh, local populations and to the wider population. But you know, p- people have got to be somewhere, and I think um, you know, as far as somewhere is concerned, that civic agenda is incredibly important, and it isn't just about as significant as it is. It isn't just about the kind of the money and the spending that in a, in a place like Manchester, fifty or sixty, seventy thousand students bring with them which is incredibly important. Footfall and and, uh, expenditure in the centre of Manchester has uh, dropped like a stone during COVID. And even with reopening, kind of footfall is only at 50% of the rate it was before the pandemic. So, you know, places like Manchester need the boost that students bring economically and the jobs that depend on that. But so do the public services that uh, everybody depends on needs the boost that students bring with them. So, you know, universities like Manchester and MMU and Bolton train kind of nurses, they train health professionals, they train doctors. Uh, um, you know, th- these are parts of the kind of public service infrastructure that uh, university cities, as well as outlying towns and other places too, depend on. And, um, you know, you can't, we, we literally can't afford to stop those things. Um, whatever the risk, so I think um, you know. I think I think we need to sort of think about the wider impact of uh, uh, of not just students, but kind of you know the, the the impact of students and the institutions and the different kind of activities that they're engaged in. And I think kind of once you do that, it, it becomes kind of more of a more of a, a, a need to 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 really, with all of the risks, get get into this term and get on with it. You, you know, and, and it's. 
it's for some of those reasons that I think it, it becomes even more impractical to think, well, we could just delay all of this or we could just avoid all of these risks. Um, because in you know, once you start getting into public services and you get into the local economies, you realise that you can't. Mary, do you think there's a danger that, you know, let's accept that, you know, it was a good idea to um, do this as we kind of go into it. Um, do, do you think there's a danger that there was a tendency to sort of oversell the advantages and undersell the kind of realities of it? Or do you just think we were sort of backed into a corner and we had to do what we did? Uh, yeah, I think I think we were backed into a corner. I mean, you know, think yourself back to mid-March when this was all just kicking off and you know I think we all fondly thought this would go on for a few weeks or maybe a couple of months and you know suddenly here we are six months later um, with uh, you know with the prospect of more constraining activities and rules on how we go about and who we mix with and everything and so I've kind of moved into a mode of instead of thinking oh we're still firefighting through a crisis which will come to an end I think we have to accept that this is this is how it's going to be for you know for however long it is and actually kind of try and get on with our lives and you know course correct and adjust as we as we go so yep i absolutely think people should go back for all the reasons that others have said and and andy just picking up your point on you know the importance of students to um to cities you know i think i think i saw a number that only something like 17% of people had gone back to their offices in london you know, uh, big big cities are completely hollowed out from the people who who normally uh, inhabit them day to day, and I think having students back would be a really good move, uh, with you know some risk attached. But I just hope that people have kind of got used to um, thinking about that and acting responsibly as responsibly as they can. I do think the government's really not doing what it should be doing on testing, though. I think this idea that. Um, I mean, and actually, the guidance that came out uh, early this morning or yesterday morning uh, is is very much actually it's very much sort of saying, well, okay, you know, you might you might have a testing regime in your university, but do do be very aware that there's all kinds of public health implications. And of course, universities have very different abilities to offer that sort of thing. So Cambridge, you know, every, you know, everyone in the community is able to get tested. All the universities, because you know, the University of Cambridge has this you know incredible infrastructure, and and you know, and that's fantastic, and that and that's you know absolutely optimal. Um, but of course, that's not going to be happening across the piece, and that's the sort of thing that I think government really needs to be stepping up on you know, to the extent that, it, that, it, that it's able to do so. And, it, and this has been an issue that it's continually, you know, con- continually fallen short of public expectations. And if we are going to continue to live anything remotely resembling a normal life, it, you know, it's just got to get better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my favourite bit was when I fell off my kind of virtual chair, it must have been about four in the morning, was that bit in the uh, test and trace document where it said um, the preferred option would be students to go to a walk-in centre uh, and we'll have 200 of these open by the end of October. And I was thinking, well, it's a bit late. <laughs> mm, yes, we've well into second spike territory by then, I fear. Yeah, yeah. Who knows when it would be too late altogether. Right, fantastic. Good. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Sally Brown here, independent consultant and freelance writer, nowadays retired but worked for many years in higher education. My article on 30 days to get it right, that is what we need to do with students in the first few weeks, assuming, as I think we must, that uh, we will go into lockdown pretty soon after students start, suggests we have five key things we need to do. Encourage students to bond with peers. Help them understand how university systems work. 
get them excited about the subject they've come to study by bringing out our best staff and getting them to be passionate and exciting, clarify how assessment on the programme will work and help them to recognise what skills they've already got for learning and what else they will need to do. Actually, all these five areas are a pretty good foundation for making a good start in higher education. Now, uh, this term has been difficult enough to get going and planning for uh, as it is, were it not for a a thing that happened, which, I don't know, we could call it all sorts of things, couldn't we? I'm just going to call it the kind of... I mean, we we keep saying A-levels debacle, but there was a kind of Scottish hires (laughs) aspect to this too. Uh, So, you know, lots of that has kind of, you know, made this term even more complicated than it already was going to be. And actually, on Wednesday, we saw an Opposition Day debate uh, on the Prime Minister and Education Secretary's role in, in in the whole fiasco. So, Mary, uh, your you know, give us your thoughts on uh, you know the the, the kind of examine shambles. Uh, yeah, and by the way, BTEX as well as yeah, Scottish yeah, yeah. hires, you know, horrors of all horrors. And and to be honest, I think all the expletives have already been used on on this one. Uh, it was just a complete uh, mess. And and for me, Roger Taylor, who's the chair of Ofqual, the, reg- the exams regulator in England said it all in those first few minutes at the select committee hearing. And he said something like, the mistake was to imagine that this would ever be acceptable to the public. Um, and, you know, and I was like, oh, blimey, you don't, need a, you don't need a degree in psychology, do you, to know that students and their parents would have a very human reaction to being downjudged by a non-human, you know, a statistical model, whether it was dodgy or not. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that for me kind of said it all. But, you know, leaving aside, um, you know, was it uh, the Secretary of State? Was it Ofqual? Was it the algorithm? You know, who who messed it up? I, I'm less interested in that, in that and more interested in the students who've been, you know, really affected by this. And, and there's a few things that I think are priorities. So, first of all, um, quite a lot of students um, are going to be starting university in what must be a few very crowded higher tariff universities. And uh, and I worry about um, how well they can be looked after their accommodation and how they can be integrated, hopefully, into a sort of COVID safe uh, community. So, so I think there are some universities who've Um, You know, they've done their best and they've responded to the Secretary of State who wanted universities to be flexible and so on. But there are some who have taken huge uh, numbers more than they were expecting or or would normally have accommodated. So that's the first. Second is, um, you know, freshers who have had little or no formal learning since March and also who may have been, uh, in effect, a little bit overgraded in their exams. So I think there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to find the transition to higher education an even bigger leap than usual. Plus, of course, they're doing it in unusual circumstances. So um, I really hope that uh, universities will be able to stand up the extra academic and pastoral and mental health support because that's going to be needed in in buckets, is, is my guess. Um the third one, I think, is for Michelle Donnellan to make good honour her promise to find some useful and supported activities for those students who who unfortunately did have to defer for a year. Um, and by the way, I feel really badly for those 
private and resit candidates who just were left with no way at all of getting any kind of awarded grade. Apparently, there was about 20,000 of them. You know, these were many of these were kids who decided to resit so that they could get a better place at university this year. So they've already taken a gap year. So, I mean, I think it's just awful for them. So I hope there's something productive for them to do um, to try and make up for it. Um, and then another one, I think there should be really quickly... Uh, a kind of a risk management task force for the 2021 exams, because um, I think standards are going to be all over the place. And when I say standards, I mean of the students entering those exams. Um, I'd like to see someone quickly standing up some uh, standardised online assessments, you know, set by the awarding by the um, exam boards that can be accessed throughout this academic year. So that in the event that some or or God forbid all candidates can't sit their exams um, next summer, there'll be some externally assessed evidence of their of their level and their likely level of achievement. Um, and I think something like that would also help Ofqual figure out where to set grade boundaries in 2021, which I think will be really, really tricky next year, um, just given, you know, the very wide variations in progress that um, uh, pupils were able to make over this last spring and summer. Um, and then I think my fifth priority would be to get the data out really quickly so that universities can work out just how much spillover demand there will be flowing through to 2021 as a result of this year's mess. There's a huge amount of anxiety out there amongst students and their parents that this year's year 13s, thinking that they're going to miss out because of um, uh, you know, deferrals and excess demand for next year. Personally, I don't think that will happen, but I think it'd be really good to get the data out as early as possible to be able to kind of quiet everyone's yeah. nerves. Presumably one of the things that could happen is the, is the, is the reverse. If, 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 if overall more people have gone in this year, perhaps because, you know, they've cancelled a gap year or gone earlier than they intended to, we might actually have a dip next year. Yeah, looking at the data, it looks as if deferrals are at a roughly the same rate. I mean, I'm sure the people who have deferred have deferred for different reasons or not deferred for, for different reasons, if you see what I mean. But all in all, the numbers look as if it hasn't been a, a massive swing and of course we're expecting demand to go up next year because the population starts growing so that's why i don't think it's going to be a huge problem but um and also universities have you know they've got a year to plan for it and they'll start seeing what the pattern of applications is um you know they'll be looking at applications as we speak um but andy i was just going to comment um i think i think you're too young to remember the curriculum 2000 exams fiasco aren't you <laughs> I, I, i'm not i'm not in fact, in fact i think we first met around that time not that not that either of us were responsible for the fiasco. I, um, no, but it, um, it looks. Well, not um, that one. <laughs> it, it looks. Um, it it pales into insignificance, really, doesn't it, compared to this year? <laughs> well, this is this is the fiasco of all fiascos, isn't it? Uh, um, you know, it uh, and and it's nowhere near over, as as you say. I mean, already next year looks really really hard to get right, um, and um, you know it's going to be and, and that and, and that's just just in terms of exams, let alone the knock on effects for uh, uh for places in higher education and where those places are and all that kind of stuff so it's going to be, uh, be tough. Andy, d d does there end up out the back of this some level of either you know an opportunity to jump into a slipstream with an agenda or fallout in terms of you know the relationship between dfe uh, a quango um you know something that was you know using lots of algorithms uh you know the kind of relationship all those kind of relationships between the kind of you know bodies D does something come out of this that um, you know kind of changes the way education is sort of run in the country 
Yeah, I mean, you know me, Jim. I think there's always an opportunity to jump into a slipstream, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I think this is this is a really really important one for universities, and I think you can already see it. Um, I was uh, uh, reflecting on. Um, uh, for a competitor, so I won't go into detail, but I was I was reflecting on Michelle Donnellan's first six months in the job, and you, you know you, you look at the speeches that uh, uh, she and Gavin Williamson made in the run up to to uh, um, the A level results and to admissions, and you know, and it was it was a again it was kind of you know the kind of attack on some of the obvious things that that Wonky thinks about and writes about on a daily basis. And then um, the the first set of results came out, and and it was the you know by and large the second choice and the lower tariff universities that came to ministers' rescue in that in that the, the first few days after after the algorithm threw out its results, and then when the kind of uh, when the the teacher assessed results came in, um, the rest of the sector kind of piled in and uh, and did their best and are continuing to do their best to make up for kind of, you know, this absolute kind of um, fiasco of a, of a process. And I think, um, you know, two things there, really. One is that is that all different types of universities showed their worth to ministers and to the rest of the country. Uh, and that's at a good time. And I think the second thing is that, um, you know, for ministers, and particularly for Michelle Donnellan, I think, you know, by forming the task force and beginning to kind of, you know, take, taking the number of controls off, looking for extra money for, for uh, medical places and other high cost subjects, you know, but actually just constantly sort of sitting with and talking to and planning with universities, uh, uh, admissions staff, uh, vice chancellors, you know, just, just kind of getting into the rhythm of what they're doing, forming those relationships rather than um, you know, having a pop at them with readily prepared lines has to kind of, you know, create sets of relationships with which universities can can begin to, as you say, slip into a more positive slipstream and and rehabilitate, you know, their own place in the way that the government thinks about. And, and you know, and that and that has I, I hope that is what has happened. Uh, and um, and I hope ministers um, are kind of. Um, adapting their views of universities and all different types of universities uh, because of what's happened. And I hope, I certainly hope that they kind of keep that in mind as we enter this very, very, very challenging semester uh, for all the reasons that we've just discussed. And I think also what was really interesting that came home loud and clear was just how much young people mind about going to university and how much their parents mind about going to university. And, you know, just imagine uh, what would have happened if we said, yeah, that's fine. You can go to an FE college and do a level four or a level five instead. You know, I hope that some of that, uh, those sort of sensibilities about how important the goal of university is to so many people, particularly in these days of more kind of democratic participation in higher education. You know, I hope some of that has um, washed off on ministers because, you know, although I've got a lot of time for expanding FE, uh, funding it better and indeed um, building up some uh, kind of level four and level five qualifications and so on. I think doing that ex at the expense of people who want to go to universities is, is just not going to wash. I mean, one thing we saw loud and clear is that demand for higher education, you know, is as high as it's ever been. Absolutely. I think uh, I think that I think you're absolutely right, Mary, and I completely agree with you on FE and level four and five. Um, but, but I think, you know, th this is a government that prides itself on understanding what the public want and acting on it 
And it turned out this summer what the public wanted was more places in higher education. And, and um, um, you know, and they also wanted a kind of fair shot at getting those places, which uh, the algorithm and the initial kind of model for grading A-levels clearly didn't give them. So I think there's been a bit of a double whammy on kind of, you know, getting where the public are at in, uh, in, in this summer for DfE. And I think it would be it would be very odd for them not to learn both of those lessons and uh, and to think kind of you know much much more carefully about what that means for both further and higher education policy as we enter an autumn where you know we're expecting lots on both. De- Debbie, just in policy terms, um, is 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 PQA going to happen? Do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> I'm going to say it here and now. I don't think it will probably. I don't think it will look like what people have talked in the past about PQA. So I don't. You know, I I think that um, certainly that a way will be found to make offers after uh, results. I think that technology will facilitate that, um, and but also that I think the you know, all the, all the sort of preamble and the decision-making and the development of relationships and all that kind of thing will, you know, will, will continue to take place. I, I do, I mean, my kind of personal hope is, is that, you know, it, it's a bit of a kind of naive hope, I suppose, is that, we, you know, we can move away at this idea that, you know, you, you know, if you're doing A-levels particularly, you only get one shot at proving yourself, you know, it's such a stupid, weak, uh, you know, unfair system. And, it, it doesn't, and you know, and one of the kind of, we'll, I mean, we'll talk a bit, a little bit about the community survey later. I mean, universities don't really like predicted grades. They don't, you know, the, the admissions kind of people say that it doesn't really give them a lot to go on. And, um, and you know, and, and, and students sort of don't, you know, you know, I think they, I think they're useful for students perhaps to gauge, you know, where, where where they might kind of set their sights and start to kind of imagine themselves into different sorts of higher education environments. But in terms of kind of decision making about whether a student should be admitted and then having to sort of adjust it in a rush, you know, on the arrival of results, it just it just sort of seems seems very silly. And um, I, you know, I, I feel like. Uh, there's very much a head of steam behind the idea that we, we could do this differently. Although I, you know, I fully admit we haven't yet seen exactly what that would look like in detail. And I know DK would be very upset with me for saying so. <laughs> uh, now, every week on the podcast, we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. Uh, with Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. Recently, there's been a discussion about um, higher education uh, led by our, our ministers, um, potentially wondering about um, uh, some of the decisions that were made in the 1990s. And this has caught people's attention again, that we're back to thinking about 1992 and the changes that happened when politics became universities. And clearly this seems to matter to some people quite a lot. Um, there's a nice letter in the uh, Yorkshire Post complaining that the um, Blair uh, 50% target caused the polytechnics to become universities, even though that that event happened seven years afterwards. But never mind, people's sense of causation is a bit confused on this. But 1992 seems, still seems to be an important date uh, in terms of something going on in the sector, and for some people, uh, something that went wrong. It is worth noting, of course, that that's 28 years ago, um, and the institutions changed their name 28 years ago. So 28 years ago, the people who did their degrees entirely at those universities after they became universities have now had enough time to have children who are now arriving at those universities. It's 28 years ago. So why are we still hung up on those things? I think some of it comes down to the way that there was a bit of a game at the time about the the new names for these universities. So Britain seems to have a tradition of having town names or city names for its universities. And we've gone through that over time. Mason College became Birmingham University, Firth became Sheffield. When we got to 1992, there was a clear reference built into the system. 
Privy Council were given the power to confirm titles, and the law that was passed said they shall have regard to the need to avoid names which may or are confusing. So a polytechnic in a town had to, on its own, was okay. Huddersfield or Portsmouth or Derby, they were okay. But lots of polytechnics were in cities where there already was a university. Privy City Council said you can't use city um, in your name. Uh, the kind of parallel with lots of American universities that you might have the University of uh, Arizona and Arizona State University. They didn't want city. But it emerged that metropolitan was okay as a word. So for some universities, that was fine. They could just become metropolitan university. People got very excited about this. I've got a copy of a Leeds student uh, from 1991, which got very excited about the prospect of the Union and the Poly merging, uh, which never quite happened. Uh, There's a nice statement from the University Registrar saying a merger wasn't being considered, not enough just to run the title. But at the time, everyone was clear that the binary divide had long since served its purpose and we should move on. Each of these name stories is interesting in and of itself, and you can track down the, the details of these. So there's a nice book by Brian Brown on the way that Oxford Polytechnic struggled with its name. It could have had Headington or Charwell. It probably dodged a bullet by not going for ISIS. It even had the suggestion that it could name itself after Robert Maxwell, who had yet to fall off his boat uh, and still had most of its pension fund in place. It nearly went for Morris, boats for the arts and crafts leader and the industrialist. But Brian Brown persuaded them that John Brooks, a former principal, was their spiritual founder, and they went with that name. A number of the names of the post-92 universities have changed. So Luton was the last of the new universities in the first week, a town that seemed rather the antithesis of Oxbridge, but now is Bedfordshire after the merger with former Bedford College campus given up by De Montfort. Thames Valley moved, so now is the University of West London. Humberside shifted to Lincoln. While the University of West of England continues, the University of Central England has swapped to Birmingham City, a word apparently now removed. So the Metropolitan tag was swapped away from Leeds Metropolitan to Leeds Beckett. So names seem to matter, but something caught in the imagination of these names at that point, and we seem to have a residual concern that these somehow aren't the kind of universities that were before, even though these are exactly the same towns and cities um, that the older universities inhabited. And so we have this strange distinction that people still hang up on about what happened in 1992. Now, as well as all the things we've talked about so far, uh, once the guidance had come out from DFE and I'd had a sort of four-minute nap, suddenly a sort of tsunami of other things happened today. So, Debbie, can you just try and, you know, kind of wrap those up for us? Right, yeah. So, I mean, I made the cardinal mistake of, of doing that working from home thing, which is visiting the gym in the middle of the day. And, and when I came back, not, you know, the gym, not Jim, not Jim Dickinson, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, it's always a cardinal mistake. But, uh, and and, and by, the, by the time I'd kind of come back and had a shower and eaten some beans on toast, uh, you know, the policy landscape had changed significantly. So, and so there we were. So, uh, the first thing that happened was that... Um, the government released a uh, review of, of bureaucracy and red tape in higher education, which is something that it's been promising to do for a while. And I think, you know, in principle, everyone's going to be very, feel very positive about it. And, and Michelle Donnellan uh, referenced this in a speech that she made to Universities UK, a remote, a remote speech to, to what would normally be the kind of the annual gathering of vice chancellors for Universities UK, but, but was all done remotely today. And she said, you know, she wants people to be spending more time supporting students and kind of delivering higher education and less time form filling. And um, that's, you know, that, we can all get behind that, of course. The thing that was just quite jaw-dropping in it was that um, 
the government appears to be sort of casually knifing the NSS, the National Student Survey. Uh, there's a line in there that basically says, since its inception in 2005, the, the NSS has exerted a downward pressure on standards. And the premise is that um, in order to score well in NSS, you basically have to give students a very easy time so that they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be satisfied and, um, and you'll score highly in league tables. So the whole thing, the whole thing is a, um, basically a, a, a sort of an, an enormous scam and uh, and then they carry on to talk about other forms of bureaucracy you know as, as, as if not leave, leaving us all astonished um <laughs> now what, what what's also interesting is, is that michelle donnellan didn't really mention that aspect of the critique of nss in her speech she did say you know we're going to review the nss again another thing that we've been expecting to happen um and it does you know so, so it sort of it, ha it has rather sort of come out of, come, come from nowhere and it's, and it's clearly not part of the key message so there will be a kind of a, a, a ofs is, will be tasked to do a wholesale review this is not certainly the end of nss but so i think it's some that's some very strong language that's going to be really hard to recover from um gavin williamson also made a speech to universities uk and i think the thing to pull out from both both the speeches of the secretary of state and the university's minister is a very noticeable shift in tone towards universities so very particularly in the part of the university's minister very fulsome thanks for all the efforts that universities have gone to this summer very much recognizing um the extent to which universities have gone above and beyond and 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 very much valuing that contribution to to expanding opportunity and making places available to students and there's been some funding and uh, announcements of capital funding and and um and of course the removal of student number controls to sort of to 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 support that um Gavin Williamson was likewise very positive about universities, although he did bring in some of the um, some 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 lines about uh, value, um, low value courses, and 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 he sort of thought that the Guardian League table was probably the place to. He mentioned the Guardian League table as being the place to discover w which which courses might be of low value. So I'll, I'll be going to the Guardian League table to find out which ones he's talking about shortly after the, this recording. Yeah, Andy, I thought one of the things that was interesting in both speeches was. You know, it's not as if that stuff about value has gone away. It's just that actually it's become even more tightly defined. I think we're about five or six speeches in a row now from Michelle and uh, Gavin that talk repeatedly about, um, you know, graduate employment numbers and non-continuation as the way to judge, you know, value. We're, we're, we're starting to hone down, aren't we, in, into something that's, you know, probably simpler than we used to have with the TEF and all of these other market signals. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, don't forget, you know, there's still a pretty tough bailout regime out there that was authored by uh, 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 ministers and uh, officials at DFE, and that hasn't gone away. I mean, I think I think the speeches are interesting. I mean, you know, we've got to remember this is on, you know, even if virtually this is on new UK turf, um, it's always going to be the most gentle. Um, uh, and it's, it's still very possible that uh, uh, speeches for other audiences will be more reminiscent of those made earlier in the year. Um, and, um, you know, so, so I, uh, I don't think, I don't think we should rule out some of those agendas um, still being as, A, still being there and B, still being as tough as they were uh, when they've been set out at various points up to now. I mean, I do think it's worth noting that, you know, in both their speeches, um, Gavin Williamson and Michelle Donnellan kind of name check universities that you wouldn't expect them to be name checking, you know, from Wolverhampton to Northampton to Roehampton, all the Hamptons, uh, and, um, you know, and Coventry and kind of um, um, uh, South Bank, I think, gets a mention. Um, you, you know, they kind of go out of their way, really, to 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 mention universities that, you know, probably over recent months have been more fearful of some of these agendas. So, so I think that that 
probably is a good uh, a good sign. And and you know, and these places deserve those name checks because uh, they're doing important work, not just in their communities, but also in things like level four and five applied research and the rest of it. Um, but going back to points about OFS, I mean, I think I think the OFS looks. Um, looks a bit out of time uh, i mean i think you know a, a quango and a um, and a, a um or a regulator rather i should say and a um an act the the kind of higher education and research act you know was done at a time which feels almost like ancient history now you know this is a much more interventionist government this is a much more active government you know from leveling up to spending money on applied research to state aid which has been a huge topic this week um, you know, this isn't a government that wants to stand back and let other agencies or the market kind of allocate resources. It, it wants to roll its sleeves up and do stuff uh, and do stuff to institutions as well as with institutions. So so I think kind of, you know, there are some pretty fundamental questions about, you know, what are the kind of agencies and the responsibilities that help you to do that? And how do you, you know, how do you kind of um, in, a, in, in what I do think will be a big autumn for strategies and white papers, um, you know, how do you kind of realise that vision when you, uh, um, you know, when you come to write those things? And I think, you know, my, my last point is that kind of even if you don't end up changing uh, laws and drafting new legislation and kind of, you know, dramatically altering things, uh, you've already pointed out that uh, Michael Barber's on his way from the Office for Students. This week, we've also heard that John Kingman is leaving UKRI. And those, you know, those were both not just the kind of founding figures of both of those agencies. They, they, were, they were and are enormous figures in kind of uh, uh, the way that higher education and education more broadly is delivered as, and research and its, its uh, connection to the economy and to place and all the rest of it. And, you know, whatever happens, the government has the opportunity to, to appoint to presumably allies who share their views in in what needs to happen to the sector and what needs to happen to uh, research spending and and you know a, a real opportunity to set a different course whatever happens uh now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan welcome to yes but does it correlate the podcast segment that breaks statistical rules but in a very specific and limited way we're at the end of the main part of the clearing season, and it feels like the right time to assess the changes in international recruitment patterns. Are COVID-19 and Brexit having an impact on where students come from, or is recruitment broadly similar to nine years ago? Excluding the four nations in the UK and China as outliers, does the number of UCAS acceptances by country for day 22 of clearing for 2020 correlate with the number of acceptances by country at the same point in the 2011 cycle. Um, I am going to say that um, I'm going to say it's pretty much the same. 2011, the difference I think uh, yeah, it's going to be fairly similar. There's been some wild fluctuations between 2011 and 2020. Um, you, you know, like the kind of you know drop in drop in demand and uh, desire for students from the subcontinent, for example. But um, but I, it feels like a lot of that is now coming back. Um, so I'm going to yeah, I'm going to say pretty similar. The answer is yes. R squared is 0.74, suggesting a strong correlation. 
The intervening years have seen a strong growth in recruitment from Hong Kong and India, but also from Spain and Poland. But recruitment has dropped from Brunei, Sweden, Norway, Lithuania and Ireland. Cyprus is a particularly interesting case. In 2011, it was second only to Hong Kong, China and UK countries for acceptances. But recruitment from there has dropped by around 910 acceptances by 2020, which puts Cyprus roughly on a par with the USA. Data is from UCAS's Clearing Digest, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Okay, so that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need at wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Mary and Andy and Debbie, everyone at Team Wonky for making it all up behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.